Hello, and welcome to This is Modern Rock. I'm your host, Will Westerkow, and we're listening to May of 1993. Today, I'm joined by my special guest, Fred Shrek. Welcome, Fred. Thank you, Will. Nice to be here. I'm glad to have you. This is exciting. Fred, I'm ready to pick your brain and and ask you some questions and Mm -hmm. talk about modern rock. But before we do that, let's go ahead and listen to The Mystery Achievement. This is a song that barely reached the modern rock charts in May of 1993. This one hit 28. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the track, and uh, all you listeners, see if you remember this one. Stop fucking me, stop fucking me, stop fucking me, stop fucking me, stop fighting me, stop yelling me. It's my life. It's my life. There it was, the mystery achievement. Yeah. If you know what it was, great. We'll clue you all in at the end of the episode, so stick around. Is there a prize attached to it? <laughs> Just bragging rights. That's <laughs> something. Yeah, so Fred, yeah. you uh, are in one of the bands, or we're in one of the bands that we're going to be listening to today, later in the episode. But I don't want to get too deep into that right now. I think we'll talk about that when we get to that song. Sure. You want to just jump into the music? Sure. Well, we've got two number ones this month. The first number one we're going to hear is from New Order. You're familiar with New Order, I assume. Yes, I was a DJ at the time at a club called The Mission, which was a funny little club that a lot of famous people used to hang out in. It was right around the corner from the world-famous Pyramid Club in the East Village. Dave Kendall, who was the MTV 120 Minutes host, uh, was the other DJ at the time. And uh, yes, New Order was very popular, not only with the folks that wanted to hear that music, it was very popular with me, because I love New Order. I love, they're very melodic. And not only the vocals, uh, lyrically, musically, Peter Hook's bass lines were really melodic, and just infectious dance songs. I like them even better than Joy Division, who I'm a big fan of. I loved New Order. They were great. They had so many great, catchy songs that just filled up a dance floor. So definitely one of my favorites. Yeah, good, great. So I guess those listeners who aren't familiar, the origins of New Order lie in the band Joy Division. Mm -hmm. Joy Division was formed in 1976 by Ian Curtis, Bernard Sumner, Peter Hook, and Stephen Morris. And this was one of the first and most influential post-punk bands. Ian Curtis died in 1980 by suicide. Tragically, yes. The rest of the band decided to carry on. They reformed as New Order. They didn't feel comfortable just bringing in a new lead singer and replacing Ian Curtis. But they did want to round out the band. So they invited Jillian Gilbert into the band She had been in an all-girl punk band called The Inadequates, and she had actually filled in for both Ian Curtis and Bernard Sumner during some previous Joy Division gigs here and there. She was a guitarist. She was asked to learn the keyboards for New Order. Their first album, I think, was pretty transitional. It still sounded fairly like Joy Division in a lot of ways, but I guess they switched over to more of an alternative dance sort of deal pretty quickly. They didn't have a lot of huge hits throughout their career, although their single Blue Monday became the best-selling 12-inch single of all time. And a cover version by Orgy is going to hit number four on the modern rock charts in 1998. But they were successful enough to land 31 consecutive singles on the UK charts. And they also managed to hit number one in the UK one time with their England World Cup 
football theme, World in Motion. I remember that. New Orders, it just, you re- relaying that story from their origins just makes me respect them more for just being, they were just this phoenix rising out of the ashes. Mm-hmm. You know, when you lose a key member like that, especially a lead singer, your chances of recovering from that are, are very small. I can only think of a few instances, you know, maybe Genesis, right. you know, they survived and became more sure. popular. ACDC. And, you know, uh, ACDC. Yeah, but right. it's, yeah, it's not easy or common. It's not common. No, no, it's not. And uh, this was a, definitely a success story for them. And, you know, good for them. Hats off. Yeah. All right. So New Order in the U.S., the band only managed two top 40 songs. But they did very well on the dance charts in the U.S. They had five number one songs on the dance charts. Going into the early 90s, the band was kind of taking a break. I, I think they were <laughs> sick of each other in a lot of ways. First time ever that happened for with a band. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> uh, they started doing some side projects. So we've, uh, we've heard from Bernard Sumner's side project, Electronic, on the show before. That was the one with, John, with Johnny, Johnny Marr, Marr, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Peter Hook formed a band called Revenge, and uh, Stephen Morris and Jillian Gilbert, who I think were dating at the time, they eventually married, but they formed a band called The Other Two. <laughs> mm. I have an interesting story about the electronic album. Yeah, let's hear it. I was a DJ at the time at the Mission, and um, the, the very last hour of the evening, uh, we would get all of the dancers from the Pyramid Club would come down there to hang out, because that club closed at three, we closed at four, and things were sort of spilling out. And I think they felt comfortable, because these were mostly trans individuals, you know, dancers and stuff, you know, performers, and they were all really sweet, wonderful people. They would come down, they would tip me lots of money to play things that I wouldn't normally play during the course of the night and they would bring me records they turned me on to so much stuff and one of those uh records was the electronic oh, record cool. which uh you know yeah yeah and i think i still have my copy somewhere it was, it was such a nice gesture they were wonderful you know and they kind of mellowed out the night they'd come down everybody wanted to chill out including them we'd all have a drink and then all go home at like four in the morning <laughs> yeah that's really nice So I guess what happened was coming into 1992 or 1993, New Order was informed by their label, Factory Records, that the label was going to go bankrupt and that the Hacienda was going to close. This is the club where they frequently played. Mm. As a result, the band was going to be financially ruined. So they were pretty much pressured and strong-armed into getting back together and recording a new album just to keep the label afloat. So the band got back together in studio. They recorded their sixth studio album, which was called Republic. Although Republic, I guess technically it's Republic copyright. <laughs> There's a little copyright mm, symbol stuck to it. The lead single, Regret, ended up becoming one of the band's biggest hits. It reached number 28 in the U.S. and number four in the U.K. And it's going to end up spending six weeks at number one on the modern rock charts. Let's go ahead and listen to it. This is... Regret by New Order. Maybe I've forgotten the name and the address of everyone I've ever known. There's nothing I regret. Save it for another day. It's the school and the kids have run away. I would like a place I could. Session on the 
I love the song still. It's still a great melodic song. Now, is it one of their classic dance songs? No, it's more of a pop pop mm-hmm. hit, but you know, I'm a sucker for melody. Sure. Know? And uh, that's one thing I always liked about them. Yeah, one thing I'm really struck by, and listening to the song, it makes sense with a title like Regret, but it is kind of a melancholy song. But then when I think about New Order, mm-hmm. I would say that's generally true of most of their songs. Like, you know, they've all got like a, a strong dance beat to them, yeah. but there's something sad about it. I think you could go even further and say that that's an element in a lot of music in that genre. I think Nick Cave called it sad bastard music. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not all like that, but I mean, it, I think a lot of those artists contemplate life, mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's a serious thing. It's, you know, it comes out that way. But, you know, that's the best stuff, in my opinion. I've heard them being called the first alternative dance band. I'm wondering mm. if that melancholy is huh? what distinguishes a, an alternative dance band from probably. a mainstream dance band. Yeah, I don't know if they're the first, but they were certainly pioneers, one of probably a handful. But, I mean, think about the tragedy they went through. You know, they grew up in England. They probably grew up poor. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm assuming that to most people that grow up in England, unless they're royalty or, you know, kind of working class, yeah. you know, like, like I was growing up. And, uh, you know, tough struggles. And then your lead singer offs himself, you know. I just can't get over the hump, you know, and that's, I'm sure they were, they, you know, they viewed him as a, as a close friend, as a, as a brother, as a brother in arms, at least. And that's some heavy stuff to go, to get over the hill with, you know, especially when you're in your twenties, you yeah. know, that's heavy stuff. Yeah. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up about this band, the transition from Joy Division sound to what we think of as a New Order sound, that was heavily inspired by Kraftwerk. And also heavily inspired by Italian disco. In particular, this band Sparks, which I love. And (laughs) they were a rock band, but uh, in the 70s, they worked with Giorgio Moroder and put out essentially a disco album called Number One in Heaven. And Joy Division was really into this song. And when they wrote Love Will Tear Us Apart, which is probably at this point their most famous song, Uh they were listening to a lot of Number One Song in Heaven. And when New Order started moving into more of a dance realm, uh, it was similar. They were into the Giorgio Moroder Italian disco stuff. Have you seen the Sparks documentary? I have, yeah. About the Mail Brothers. It's amazing how many people they influenced. Mm-hmm. And um, one other point of interest is one of the other producers that worked with Sparks is a fellow by the name of Tony Visconti, who I'm sure you know. I do, yeah. Tony's son, Morgan, is my partner in The Ancients. He produced the single off the first record when he was only 18 years oh, wow. old. <laughs> Yeah. As a young boy, he has memories of being in the studio with the Mail Brothers as they're recording. I forget what... I think that album was Indiscreet. Indiscreet. That's the one. Tony Visconti, for the listeners who care, he produced all the T-Rex albums, as far as I know, and um, a bunch of David Bowie as well, and all kinds Mm -hmm. of other stuff. I'm just curious, how did you end up working with an 18-year-old producer? Yeah, We're going to go back to New York City, the Lower East Side, in the early 90s, late 80s, and it was a really vibrant time, and there's just all kinds of people surrounding this little club. And Morgan and his girlfriend at the time, who's much older, you know, she used to sneak him into this club. (laughs) 
And my manager, who owned the mission, co-owned by he and uh, the eventual bass player of the Ancients, you know, they used to serve him. They used to give him drinks. Yeah. And he was kind of this boy genius. And my manager at the time said, hey, you know, Tony Visconti's son is a great little producer. He's got great ideas. Uh, Let's give him a shot at producing one of the songs off you know, the first record, which, you know, he was kind of funding and executive producing himself. So that's how I got to meet Morgan, a much more mature 18 than anybody I'd ever spoken to. I was already, I may have, I was about 10 years older than him, but it was like I was talking to somebody who was the same age as me, Mm -hmm. very mature. And we became great friends and uh, we have been writing together ever since. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, back to New Order's Regret, I suppose. I think I feel pretty similar to you. I mean, I, I think it's a, a really good song. There's others that I like it's more. kind of their swan song, yeah. too, right? I mean, they just kind of, that was their last sort of yep. big hit. They kept going. They put out more albums. Mm-hmm. I think they released four albums after that, but that was their last big hit. And at this point, as mm-hmm. far as I know, New Order is still a band, except for... Peter Hook, who I think does not get along with Peter Hook anymore. and the Light. Yep. So he's he's got a side project, Peter Hook and the Light. Or I guess maybe at this point it's not a side project. So it's the rest of New Order as New Order and, and Peter Hook doing his own thing. Right. Yeah. I saw Peter Hook here in uh, Nashville. It uh, was Peter Hook and the Light. It was a great yeah. show. It was a really great does show. Does he play yeah. New Order songs? He does. He does. So New Order was up there for a couple weeks. And then our next band, Depeche Mode, muscles in for a week. So we're going to talk about Depeche Mode, and we just talked about them two episodes ago. I don't want to go over the whole story again. We just talked about Depeche Mode. But this is from the album that's following up Violator. The album's called Songs of Faith and Devotion. This is Depeche Mode's eighth studio album. Their first single, I Feel You, hit number one, I think for five weeks. And we're going to be listening to their second single called Walking in My Shoes. And you said you're a big New Order fan. Were you a Depeche Mode fan as well? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I have some thoughts on this particular album as well, because I was still, as I said, an active DJ at the time of Violator, which was such a watershed album. So many great songs off of that. And I think they really hit their stride on that record. And they kind of captured not lightning in a bottle, because I I could see it happening. You know, Music for the Masses was a great record. Black Celebration, those records were just, they were just getting better and better. By the time they got to this record, in my humble opinion, they had the formula together, and it was just kind of a continuation. It's the first record that sort of didn't go a little further. And it's solid. It's totally solid. It's Depeche Mode. You know, it, was, it sold a lot of records, mm-hmm. you know, but uh, they had that formula down, and they kind of went with it. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense, and I completely agree. And I mentioned this two episodes ago when we talked about the album, but the band much like New Order, maybe even to a greater extent, we're definitely not getting along together. <laughs> Being in a band is so hard. It's like trying to hurt a bunch of drunk cats, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you're, you know, one guy's taking it more seriously than the, than the other, and then there's always the, the, the inevitable clashes and direction. And uh, it's like basically like you are in a relationship with four different, five different people. Imagine. Yeah. Well, we're going to listen to Walking in My Shoes. The song was number one on the Modern Rock Charts for one week. And at least at one point in time, songwriter Martin Gore was asked to name his favorite Depeche Mode song of all time. And he said if he was really pushed to make a choice, this would be it. Really? Here it is. Walking in My Shoes. Before you come 
Like I said, all the elements are there. It's a great sounding song. Mm-hmm. Like I said, all the elements are there. They had it down by that point. And I think we said similar things about I Feel You a couple episodes back. Mm-hmm. I think Walking in My Shoes, for me, is a stronger song. I think it's got a little more to grab onto, a little more hook. I guess my feelings are, yeah, it sounds good. I think the verse is a tad dull. But what I really like is, as we're going into the chorus... It gets to a point where you're like, was that the chorus? I'm, you know, semi-satisfied mm-hmm. with that, I guess. And then it like goes in a slightly unusual direction with the you'll stumble in my footsteps. And that's where I really like the song. I think it just steps yeah. up a big notch. That's a clever little transition that they did there. Mm-hmm. I would have liked to have heard more of that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I'm a music snob. <laughs> But yeah, it it does sound really good. There's a lot of really interesting sonic touches going on. And um, I think David Gaughan, the lead singer for Depeche Mode, was having a pretty serious drug problem at the time. And if you watch the music Mm. video, he looks to me like a very frail vampire. Which probably worked great for his image, but not so much for his personal life. Yeah. I'm actually going to see them again at the end of October here in Nashville. They're playing uh, the arena here. And it'll be the first time I've seen them since uh, the Violator tour. Oh, wow. But what a great front mm-hmm. man he is. Uh, real engaging. Yep. I was really surprised the first time. I thought they were all just going to stand there in front of their synthesizers. But not him. No, he was a true front man. Yeah. yeah very uh, entertaining and uh, had a good rapport with the audience, all that stuff. Sure. Yeah. Consummate performer. So Depeche Mode is going to chart with one more song from Songs of Faith and Devotion. And they're going to chart like 12 more times overall. When you talk about the great bands of that era, they've got to be in the conversation because they're, they're so influential. Yeah. Uh, absolutely, yeah. All right, we're going to go down the charts a little bit to number four. We're going to hear from a band called Midnight Oil, and we've talked about this band yes. a few times on the show before. They've done pretty well for themselves on the modern rock charts. The Oils, as their fans refer to them, were formed in Sydney, Australia in 1972. So the band was originally called The Farm, and in 1976, they picked up singer Peter Garrett. They also changed their name. They put a few song names into a hat, and they drew Midnight Oil out of the hat. The other choices were Television, which, of course, is a band, no. and Sparta, which is also a band. The other choice was Southern Cross, and when I saw that name, I was like, that's got to be a CSN cover band. And I looked it up, and it actually is, yeah. <laughs> television, that's funny. I know. They, like, Think about that. If they would have been television, then other television might have had to be like Television US yeah. or Television New York or something. Television would have been the, one of the first bands I saw at CBGB. Oh, did you? I wow. did, and I saw them as an opening band for Peter Gabriel. Oh, wow. In 1977, or like at Peter Gabriel's first solo tour, they were the opening act. Wow. It's pretty wild. All right, so the band is singer Peter Garrett, drummer Rob Hurst, guitarist, keyboardist Jim Mogini, guitarist Martin Rotzi, and depending on what year we're looking at, bassist Peter Gifford, who was in the band through 1987, 
or bassist Bones Hillman, who was with the band until his death in 2020. And initially, this was a cover band. They were doing a lot of Led Zeppelin and CCR and Cream covers. Once Peter Garrett joined the band and then finished up his law degree, they decided to make it a full-time thing and started writing originals. And a lot of their originals are what you might call politically charged. Mm, Yes, yes. They were definitely statement-oriented, you know, very involved in environmental causes and and whatever mess was going on politically in Australia at the time. And I I believe Peter Garrett was actually a member of their parliament Mm -hmm. at some point. He was. He had some sort of political career, yeah. That's right. You have a midnight oil connection, if I'm not mistaken. (laughs) (laughs) I do. And it's a bit of an embarrassing one, but I'm going to tell the story anyway because it's funny. When I was in the band Crush, we did really well in the market of Atlanta, Georgia. We kept getting asked to go down there. They were playing the heck out of the album down there. And um, we were asked to do an opening slot for Midnight Oil at the amphitheater back then. It was called Lakewood. Mm-hmm. Pretty big amphitheater. You know, it was, a, it was one of the, it was probably the biggest show I had done to date, uh, maybe since. I don't know. But uh, when you talk about bands getting along, we did not probably from the get-go, and uh, there was a lot of drinking going on, and uh, we all would get pretty hammered, like, before, during, and after shows, and uh, that was no exception, and I think I made a bit of a fool of myself on stage, and the rest of the day did not go well. I think I got it. I got into an altercation with Midnight Oil's road manager, and I was expelled from the ground. So, oh no! <laughs> uh, you know what's really great is years later I played with this little rockabilly band in Atlanta, and some guy, you know, was there, and he remembered me, and he said, oh, "You didn't have a very good day that day, did you?" I said, "No, I did not." Well. <laughs> But Midnight Oil, I, you know, although I wasn't the biggest fan, I had to say they had a really strong rhythm section, and they were able to do this really interesting stuff on top of it, kind of syncopated stuff. And and Peter Garrett, on top of that, just it just worked, mm-hmm. you know. I wasn't necessarily in, in, in the frame of mind where I wanted to hear a lot of political stuff, especially that didn't relate to me. But as it turns out, it does relate to everybody, yeah. what, what he's saying. And, you know, so I, I got to appreciate them a little bit more. And, uh, and my apologies to whoever the road manager was back in 1993. I'm so dreadfully sorry. I've mended my ways. And, uh, you know, I'm a solid citizen now. So Good. Well, I actually, I think the road manager listens to this show. So you're in luck. Does he? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I'm assuming. I just I'm... need to tell him that I was indeed a jerk, and, uh, you know, I apologize. <laughs> All right. In 1993, the Oils released their eighth studio album called Earth and Sun and Moon. They released five singles from this album. We're going to hear one of them called Truganini, and it is about an Aboriginal Tasmanian woman and how Aboriginal lives were affected by European settlement. Here it is. Triganini, number four on the modern rock charts.
it's a powerful song. I love the rhythm section. I love the guitar work in that. Peter Garrett's Peter Garrett, but he's, you know, it works with the song. It was a good song. Yeah. Had a good uh, backbeat to it. Mm-hmm. Aggressive. I like yep. that. You, know? you could tell they were probably a Led Zeppelin cover band <laughs> at one time because the guy plays a little bit like John Bonham. Sure. You know? I love that heavy foot on the kick drum. There's something about Midnight Oil, and actually I would say most Australian rock bands, <laughs> maybe not most, I don't know, a lot of them, but there's a quality of bar band to them. Midnight Oil here to me sounds like a very, very good bar band. And then they get into the chorus, and I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm hearing the alternative in there now. Yeah. I think a lot of Australian bands, their whole way that those bands come up, their scene mm-hmm. kind of starts off with the cover band. You know, right. here, like in New York and where I grew up and stuff, you were either in a cover band or you were an original band. Yep. If you're in a cover band, you try to do originals, get lost. You know, vice versa. Yep. You know. There is probably like, okay, well, that just it, that they got to make money somehow. So they're probably more forgiving about mm-hmm. it. You know, I think in excess, I think they were a cover band. I think Men at Work, they were definitely a cover band. Yeah. Uh, even the Wiggles, I think, were a cover <laughs> band. You know. So yeah, that's I think that's a pretty common thing. Yeah. There. The only one I don't know about is maybe Split Ends, which later became Crowded House. And I really like them all. They all have merit. They're all great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I like the song and I do appreciate the politics. Honestly, I wish I was a little more well-versed in the history of Aboriginal Tasmanians and Australians so I could speak a little more about the lyrics and everything. I'm sure it's all out there for you to discover. It's it's a pretty important uh, story about, much like the Native American plight in this country. And I think there it was, they pretty much almost exterminated yeah. them, you know. It's a brutal history. Mm-hmm. It's sad. I just hope humanity gets its act together. <laughs> really, it's about time. Nice. Or just get off the planet already. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it'll happen. One way or the other. So when the album was released, there were some liner notes that did make some reference to Triganini being the last surviving Aboriginal Tasmanian. And about 7,000 people came forward to protest after that, claiming to be living Aboriginal Tasmanians. Oh, how embarrassing. And saying that the band was perpetuating white myths about the extinction of Tasmanian Aborigines. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, oops indeed. Peter Garrett apologized on behalf of the band. Don't let Peter write the liner notes anymore. Right. But, you know, it it is an interesting thing. This happens to others, not just him, where where you're trying to do something that you think is beneficial. Yeah, and you're relying on something anecdotal, which you think is true, and it's, you know, it turns out it it really isn't, which is why we all need to do our research (laughs) before we... That's right. I'm no stranger to that. You know, I know. Yeah. All right, well, Midnight Oil was going to return to the modern rock charts one more time, but by the time they released their follow-up album in 1996, it seems like there's not much interest in this brand of alternative rock, at least amongst, you know, radio programmers. Yeah. The band split up in 2002 so that Peter Garrett could focus on a political career. They reformed in 2009, and they're still going at it. Their most recent album, Resist, was released in 2022. However, if anyone has dreams of seeing them live, you're probably out of luck. The band stated that their Resist tour last year was going to be their last, although they are planning on making music together in the studio in the future. Mm. We got one more band we're going to talk about, and this band is called Crush. Fred, you were in this band, but before we talk about Crush, let's talk about you a little bit and what you were doing before 
Crush. Yeah. I know you had at least a couple bands before that. I did. But I know one of them was called Shoot the Doctor. Yes. I'm not an expert on this band, but I did catch a couple episodes of Star Search that you were on. <laughs> Can't hide from it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it struck me as kind of like a, a hybrid goth metal band. That's precisely what it was. Yeah, that band was formed in the mid-80s. I was coming from sort of the goth alternative side. The guitar player, his name is Dave Chin, wonderful guitar player. But he was coming from more of the metal side, you know, he, and he was a phenomenal guitarist. He was shredding. For yeah, <laughs> really great. Yeah. But I just think, it, especially after the Star Search thing, which was not... You know, I, it is what it is. And I, of course, you know, in the end, I caved in. I, I, I wanted to go to California and be on television, too, you know. Yeah. Back then, you know, that could be a career killer for an alternative band. <laughs> but your band did very well because I saw at least three episodes you were on. So you must have won the competition a couple of times. We won twice. If we would have won the third time, we would have went into the final, which would have been us against the previous champion from earlier that year. As it turns out, they won anyway, and I think it was kind of a foregone conclusion. You know, they were pretty popular within the atmosphere and the, and the world of that show. And that band was called Nirvana. Uh, <laughs> no, no. But after that, we were disappointed with how things went. And, and you know, the frustration started setting in, and I really wanted to kind of go more in the alternative goth industrial direction. Right. So I left and I formed a, a band called The Ancients in partnership with my manager, producer at the time, Rob Satcher, who wrote a great book about the times back then called uh, Wake Me When It's Over. But he introduced me to all these great people who helped me put that first record together, like Paul Ferguson from Killing Joke and John Carruthers, who were both members of Crush. That's how I met them. A couple of members of the Psychedelic Furs, who were not, you know, the main Butler brother guys, but people like Joe McGinty and Knox Chandler. Those guys all kind of pitched in and helped me put this first record together. Was Morgan Visconti working on the first one? He was brought in later when we were working on the last song, which ended up being the single off that record, Release Me, is the name of the song. And he produced that song. And to me, that was the best song on the record. He did a great job. I read that Joey Ramone was a big fan of the Ancients. Is that true? He was. And yes, and he co-managed us for a while. He uh, brought me up to Seymour Stein's office. He tried to get us a record deal. He was that kind of guy, you know, if he really believed in what you were doing, he tried everything he could to help you. And uh, there's always a place in my heart for Joey Ramone. He was a good guy, really good guy. Yeah, wow. All right, so uh, the first Ancients album came out, I think, in 1991 and yes. didn't do much commercially. Is that? Yeah, it was, it was an indie record. You know, it was, it was always my intention to do a follow-up because I knew that's how... You know, I'm a pretty hard-working guy. Like I said, I come from a working-class family, so I know you got to keep hammering away. But in the interim, I had this opportunity fall on my lap to join up with the guys in Crush because their singer had some kind of meltdown. And they had the record done, and uh, the guy just quit. So they were kind of in a bind. So they asked me to re-record all of his tracks, which I did in two weeks in London, and it was crazy. Yeah. Is that just a matter of, like, wanting the singer who's touring to be the person that sang on the album? Or was it like they didn't like the vocals and they wanted to redo them because they weren't good? I think they always had tension with this guy. I don't think they were ever really impressed with him as a vocalist. I think I came in and I, I did what I do and they loved it and they accepted me as like a, you know, an equal member of the band at that point. Yeah. Not that we were going anywhere from there, but, you know, 
we wrote some great material after that, you know, which I participated in. And uh, unfortunately, it never got to the second record. So I put some of those songs on the second Ancients record, which is called Mind, if you want to check it out, what Crush might have sounded like on the second record. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's listen to the song that landed Crush on the modern rock charts. I don't have the kind of attachment to this record that the original members might have because I did not participate in the creative part of putting the songs together. Although I will say the songs were great and uh, they were right up my alley. So it wasn't that hard to fall right into it because it was basically I'm playing with two guys that I have a lot of respect for. Big Paul Ferguson from Killing mm-hmm. Joke and John Carruthers from Susie and the Banshees. So just being put in the same category as them for a while was pretty exciting for me. All right. Well, let's listen to it. This is The Rain yeah. by Crush. And it hit number 26 on the Modern Rock Charts in May 1993. I try to know your mind some things you can't deny. The guitar solo in that is fantastic. Well, I was just going to bring that up. It's very unexpected. It's very Beatlesque, sort of like uh, electric sitar or something. And he's such a great player. I would put him up there with some of the better guitar players. And I don't know what happened to him. So if you're going to ask me whatever happened to him, I can't tell you. Guy just disappeared. Wow. I like that song. It sounds like uh, a song that would chart on the modern rock charts. <laughs> sounds like it's got some hit potential in there. If only. Uh, you know, it is what it is. You know, it's, uh, it was going to be as popular as it was, was going to be. But, you know, I, I think it probably deserved a little bit more attention than it got. But, you know, who am I to say? I'll agree with you. It deserved more attention than it got. No, thank you. I appreciate that. How long did the band exist after... The album was released. Did you all tour? Did the band just split up right away? No, we did a handful of gigs. We did some uh, promo touring where we, a couple of us just kind of went off and did some in-stores and radio stations. Uh, as far as live gigs, maybe seven or eight. We, you know, just because we didn't get on the Lollapalooza tour, you know, the guys didn't want to play. And it kind of shot us in the foot. And uh, the band uh, disbanded pretty quickly after that. But I will say I got two really good friendships out of it. Paul and I are really great friends. And John Miko, the bass player, fellow from Staten Island, another great friend. So I got two really great friendships out of it. And then you said, you know, you had worked with them on some new songs and you took those Mm -hmm. uh, to put on the second Ancients album. And um, I read that you, you know, did some work on that and then it just didn't happen, at least not for quite a while. It disappeared yeah. uh, well i didn't even actually try what i did was i just got so sick of being where i was and I, I was going through my own things and i just needed to change the scenery so i always intended to complete it and you know morgan and i worked really hard on it we actually had paul come and play on a lot of that stuff and i i loved the record it's just that i i don't know i just need to change the scenery so i figured well i'm, I'm gonna go down to nashville for a year just kind of hop around you know that's a big change of scenery it is a big change of scenery and i was 
at the time, I was kind of immersing myself in this sort of uh, vintage, old, uh, classic country stuff, which I love. I, I love, like, uh, you know, Johnny Cash and Buck Owens, and I started, like, listening to all that stuff. So yeah. I wanted to do some sort of alternative version of that. And I did. I put together this little kind of rockabilly band called the Billy Goats. And I just ended up staying here. I met my wife here and just, uh, you know, 30 years later, here I am. And I did that for a while. And then I just kind of did the behind the scenes thing where I did session work. And a little later on, my old friend Rob Satcher called me and told me John Ashton from the Psychedelic Furs needed a singer for his solo project. He had just left the Furs. And so I got involved in that. Yeah. It's called Satellite Paradiso. I listened to that album. That was pretty cool. <laughs> well, he wrote the music, I wrote the lyrics, but the roster of people that played on it's that incredible. record is pretty, yeah. Yeah, and I, I, there's like, what, 20 people on it, and it's like the groups they've been involved with, Psychedelic Furs. Most of Mercury Rev. Dead Boys. Gang of Four. Mm-hmm. Cheetah Chrome. The de- Yeah, I actually produced that session with Cheetah down here in Nashville. Wow. Because he was living here at the time, yeah. Yeah, we talked about Joey, and I said, yeah, Joey was a sweet guy. He tried to get me a record deal, and he's like, well, he did the same thing for us, you know? <laughs> wow, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we shared some stories. You know what's funny about it, just to put it all in perspective, now, you know, I never got to where I wanted to go in the beginning and be this big rock star or anything. You know, I was a small part of all that. Yeah. I was more in the catbird seat on the periphery. And as I look at it now, I'm really glad that that's where I ended up because I got to see all this stuff like firsthand and it was so amazing and uh, it gave me so many great stories to tell. It's been a weird little career for me. Sure. (laughs) Yeah. You get a lot of the benefits of being a rock star without... Without the heroin. Yeah, I was going to say, without experiencing the uh, <laughs> the regret of New Order. No, I don't regret a thing. And to be honest with you, I'm going to, uh, we've put the original touring band of the Ancients back together for a couple of shows to commemorate the release of the original record. That's what I like to do. I like to do things at my own pace and, and just, you know, either play in my own backyard or in my old stomping grounds or where I know, you know, I'm done with touring and all that, obviously, because I don't think I'd survive a week out there. So it's pretty good. It turned out excellent for me. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. So at this point, the second Ancients album came out in 2015. The third Ancients album came out last year. Yes. And then there's the original album was remastered. Remastered and uh, with some bonus tracks and uh, re-released. And this time uh, Morgan did all of the remastering. And, and those are all on Spotify, I saw. So if people want to listen to those, they're available to check Absolutely. out. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not like I had necessarily low expectations, but I was still impressed by how good it all sounded. Oh, well, thank you. Anyone who is a fan of Sisters of Mercy and Peter Murphy and like whatever kind of music from that era, I felt like some of these tracks stand up very well against those bands that are considered classics of the genre. So I'm very humbled by that compliment. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Yeah, well, I'll say this about that project in particular, the Ancients. I meant every note of all of that. That is such a personally important vehicle for me. Yeah. So I, I approached it with a pure heart and just an honesty, and maybe that shows through in some of it, I hope, you know. Yeah, well, how can it not? I appreciate it. So uh, I guess that was it for our four songs. Yeah. The mystery achievement from the beginning of the episode That was an artist named Dr. Albin. Were you familiar with this? I have no idea. I'm not familiar with it at all. No, I had never heard this song. I know that we beat them by one chart (laughs) point. (laughs) That's that's important. That's true. Although, this song, It's My Life, was a worldwide hit 
So even though it didn't do that well on the modern rock charts, it hit number one in multiple countries. Oh, well, okay. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for listening. If you haven't done so before, it would be amazing if you could rate, review, subscribe, and all that good stuff. If you want to send me a message, I would love to hear from you. My email is thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Of course, thank you, Fred, so much for joining me. My pleasure, Will. It was uh, enlightening and uh, a lot of fun. (laughs) Good. I'm glad you had fun. I think rather than leave with the outro song, why don't we send our listeners off with an Ancients track? Great. Do you have anything in mind that's a good one for us to hear? My absolute favorite of the three is on last year's record called Leveler, and it's a very dramatic song, but it's got a lot of emotion, and it's called Tonto. Tonto, all right. It's a bit of a uh, dark ballad, but that's one of my favorites. Okay, well, let's do it. All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll catch you all in June 1993. Here is Tonto by the Ancients. Mine